Well, let's begin. Uh, but before we start, let's let's have a prayer. Well, well, identified there, I believe, something that's fundamental to appreciating the truth. He said, "Meekness, receive with meekness." the implanted word, the engrafted word. That word meekness is a word that's a little hard to translate. Sometimes it's been explained as uh, gentleness, and that's pretty close. Sometimes it's been explained as strength under pressure or duress. Uh, It was a word that the Greek people, Greek-speaking people, used to describe a horse. A horse that would accept the bit, the bridle, the rein. He didn't try to sling it off. He didn't refuse the bit. He could be controlled, in other words. He accepted the control. Well, humility, of course, is the key to that. We think of meekness being the same as humility. It's not exactly the same, but it's the result of humility. Humility clears the ground of anything that would obstruct, any hindrance there that would keep us from hearing God's word, from listening to it, heeding it. And so to receive with meekness the implanted word means that we hear it without resistance. We receive it under the saving of our souls. It becomes implanted. It's the implanted or engrafted word because that's how the word works. It has to become a part of us. It had to have, has to have a place of residence. And uh, it's just like the seed planted in the ground. It has to abide there before it can bear fruit. <clears throat> Let's ask two or three quick review questions. How would you explain, let's say, you're Dan, aren't you? I'm Dennis. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> All right, Dennis. We're off on the right foot. Uh, uh, how would you explain the background out of which Calvinism arose? Uh, well, the control of the total fabric of that society and not just part of the Catholic Church over the people. And the fact that they separated uh, the thinking of the individual from judging or making a sermon on the doctrines and it was composed of them. They had no, they were all separate and apart from the church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they were evil part. Mm-hmm. And uh, people wanted to know more. And people were reading, some of them had the high access to the Bible, and I guess, obviously, they must have been some high scholars to be able to get access to that. All right, and uh, Grace. The dispensing of grace was made dependent on something in the Catholic system. What was it, uh, Dan? That's right. Deeds. And often they were called deeds of merit, especially the works or the, of uh, super erogation, as they called them, uh, those special works, those, work, those works especially deserving of credit, done by the saints, for instance. That caused this treasury of merit to accumulate. Uh, and out of that treasury, then uh, merit could be dispensed to Jonathan, or to Dennis, or to Wayne, or to Bobby. And the ways it was was by uh, purchasing indulgences, or by engaging in uh, the sacraments, 
or the use of the sacramentals. These were the avenues of grace, the avenues along which grace was channeled or dispensed. And that is the background of Calvinism. It was against that that John Calvin was rebelling. But the problem was, well, just what was the problem, Jonathan, when he, when he decided to rebel against that? That's right. He swung all the way over here. And that happens so often. We have to watch ourselves to make sure that we have a balanced understanding of the Scriptures as well as a balanced view of things in general. Uh, that we don't have any private agendas or self-established ideas. When we come to Calvinism then, <clears throat> let's briefly uh, deal with the matter of total depravity over on page 3. This again is still review. Uh, how would you describe total depravity, Ralph? The idea that uh, there's no good in man that he's uh, inherited the sin of Adam, that he's just, uh, the flesh is just uh, totally uh, against God, and that, uh, uh, I don't know what I can put it all in words, but that he's just, uh, Well, you, you've done a pretty good job already. Total, uh, total depravity or uh, corruption, total corruption, that is every part of the being corrupted. Uh, the corollary of that was total inability, wasn't it? And, but you covered that too. You said uh, there's no good in him. There's not the capacity for any good leading to justification. Now, they don't say that a human being can't treat his neighbor right. You know, that's a good deed too. But that's not going to lead to his justification. That's not going to justify him before God. Uh, he's capable of no good deed leading to justification. Because in their system, justification is totally a matter of grace. Uh, even if you're, if you're a strict Calvinist, and when somebody says, oh, but what about by grace through faith? You know the Bible says that. Where does it say it? Ephesians 2, that's right, verse 8. So if you respond with a statement like that to a strict Calvinist, you know what he's going to say? That even the faith is given to you by God. <laughs> What's that? Uh-huh. That's right. God grants you the faith. He sort of drops it in your lap. It's a gift. And uh, so the power to believe is not something that you generate. It's not something that you do. Now, just stop and think about that. We didn't do very much the other day in the way of refuting Calvinism. We, we had some things to say about that that will help us later. But how would you refute that aspect of Calvinism which says... Faith is a gift from God. And if you don't believe, it's because God has not enabled you to believe. How would you refute that? Faith is a work from the gift. It's something that man actively participates in, isn't it? 
All right. John 6.29 says that, doesn't it? Okay. Well, then we have to go with Hebrews 4. And why, why would God hold that against them? The fact that they did not mix the Word of God with faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, it's not not contradiction. I guess okay. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah that's right. Now, and ask this question too. To whom is the command to believe addressed? Every time you have it. To the individual. Not to God. The individual then obviously is accountable for believing. He's responsible for faith. That, that's where the command is directed, isn't it? Isn't that what uh, Paul did there in Acts 16 when he said to the uh, jailer, he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved in your family, your household. He, he directed it to the man. He didn't say, Wait till the Lord comes along and uh, drops it in your lap or till the Spirit zaps you and uh, quickens you or makes you alive so that you can believe. He just said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Because how faith is uh, faith is uh, by hearing. That's another good point. Hearing the word of God. The word is implanted, the word is taught. The person, uh, they they, uh, take that, what they have heard, and it produces faith. Right. It isn't something that is just adapted. That's right. Uh, it's not a supernatural endowment, is it? Uh, we're not saying that God doesn't give faith. He does, but he gives it by the means of the scriptures. That's why uh, I have difficulty when I hear people praying for faith. I don't remember. Uh, there may be somewhere that I don't remember uh, where people pray for faith and God gives them faith. Well, he, he taught it. He, he uh, taught that it were faith of That's true. But uh, a passage like, uh, what is it, Luke 11, when Lord increase our faith, that's a request. Yeah. Did he say that he would? Is a question I've always had about that. Well, the Bible teaches, for instance, that he grants repentance. But there again, it's not a miraculous or supernatural endowment without the use of human faculties. Uh, God grants repentance by the individuals having the word there to produce faith, which then, of course, turns into repentance. See the reason for repentance. They talk, they see their sin, and uh, they see the need for repentance because of what they talk. But the Calvinistic system steers clear of any human involvement. Uh, According to Calvinism, God does it for you. According to the New Testament teaching, God is involved. Without God, there could be no faith, of course, because God provides the evidence in which a person, or which generates belief. But at the same time, uh, God leaves it to the individual, of course, to do the believing and to do the repenting, for that matter. God does not circumvent, that is, go around, the faculties of his creatures. Now, I said the other day that God is sovereign. And I think we need to emphasize that from time to time. But does the sovereignty of God mean that he has absolute, total control 
of every human faculty. No. That God is supreme. Every human being must acknowledge Him to be such. But God, in moral matters, that is, in matters involving the will of the individual, does not work in a coercive way. He works in a persuasive way. He uses moral means. Do you know what I mean when I say moral? That is means that appeal to the moral nature of man, his will, his volition. That's the only way God works in in matters pertaining to salvation. He works by means of appeals, by means of evidence, by means of reason. He addresses himself first to the intellect of the individual, then to the emotions, and to the will of the person. But he doesn't force the will. He allows the individual the freedom to choose whether to obey or to disobey. So the sovereignty of God, particularly in this realm that we're going to call the moral realm, leaves man the power of choice or the power of volition. Now, God does not circumvent that. What I mean by that is, God does not come around here and miraculously endow the person with faith or with repentance or anything else. He makes use of those faculties. He appeals to those faculties. He does not short-circuit them or circumvent them or get around them. Uh, A lot of the pioneer preachers used to emphasize that very point. And they did a lot of preaching on this, and I'll tell you why. Because they faced a society that was steeped in Calvinism. That's why. uh, Back in the 1820s, shortly after Alabama became a state, in 18, what was it, 1819, okay? Shortly after Alabama became a state, just in the next few years, people started pouring into Alabama. I've been reading about it in recent months. I've been doing some research about a man who was a Baptist down in Morgan County, and uh, he threw off the shackles of Calvinism, the shackles of denominationalism. He uh, he was introduced to the gospel, evidently, uh, from the best we can determine, through the writings of Martin W. Stone in the Christian Messenger, which came down into Alabama. There was a preacher... Uh, he had a, an address at Somerville, Alabama. You all know where that is, out on Highway 67, out of Decatur, a little bit there. Uh, there was a preacher out in there by the name of Elisha Randolph, who later moved down to Lamar County, Fayette County, down in there. But he lived in Martin County at first. Randolph, according to the early issues of the Christian Messenger, was there was Martin W. Stone's agent down there. That is, he's the one that promoted the paper, got people to take the paper. And Stone was teaching some of the very principles of New Testament Christianity. Now, Stone at that time had not fully learned the gospel, but he was doing a great job in opposing Calvinism. Stone and various others wrote along this very line that God does not circumvent the faculties of his creatures. The gospel is there, and the gospel has to be preached, and Ralph has alluded to this, how faith comes, by the hearing, the message of the gospel. And uh, after all, 
What's the passage that says that? Faith. So then faith comes of hearing? Yes. That's right. And uh, when Paul went to Corinth, in Acts 18, at verse 8, you remember the Bible says, So then many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Hearing is the route to believing, you see. Uh, in Acts 15, Oh, I'm not sure if it's verse 6. If it's not, it's somewhere right in there. Uh, There at the Jerusalem meeting, one of the apostles stood up and he said that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. You remember that? Hearing is the route to believing. And it just happens that way all the time. That's why in the commission, the great commission, The Lord said, go and teach the nations, disciple the nations, preach the gospel to every creature. Why preach the gospel if people have been elected under salvation or damnation from the beginning of the world? Why preach the gospel? Somebody says, oh, well, that just lets them know whether they're saved or lost. Not according to that passage. You have to learn that somewhere else. That passage says, preach it. To cause them to believe. Because it says, he that believes, or he that disbelieves. He that believes not. So obviously the purpose of the preaching was to discriminate between the believer and the unbeliever. It was kind of strange to go back in those days, uh, right in John Smith, and people were wrestling whether or not they were a part of the elect. And, uh, you know, they... uh, Yes, and uh, when you read about those fellows back there, it's fascinating to see all the misery they went through. It really was misery, as they described it, because they wondered. They had no way of knowing. Uh, and they were advised by the higher-ups, uh, those who were supposedly uh, the authorities uh, on that system of Calvinism, well, just wait, because if you're, if you're God's elect, uh, one of these days God will show you. He'll, pick, he'll show you that you're picked out. And, of course, the, uh, the camp meetings that took place, like the one at Keene Ridge. And, by the way, there were some all the way across North Alabama in the 1820s and the 1830s, even up into the 50s. I've read about those. And uh, those camp meetings became uh, really one way in which Calvinism underwent some modification. We're going to talk about that in our study today. Well, this has started, as as you can see, uh, seeing a little bit about the refutation of Calvinism. But we need to think today about the spread of Calvinism, and we're going to look at it here in the first section of our study. Then we're going to examine some ways in which uh, Calvinism underwent some modifications. And then we're going to uh, deal briefly today with some of the flaws of Calvinism. That is just the system itself. The Lord willing, tomorrow and Friday, we're going to get into that uh, outline that I've given you on Calvinism, the various points of Calvinism. 
But in today's lesson, we're going to see that because of the modifications that took place, uh, there aren't too many people around that still buy into the whole system. There are a lot that buy in the first part, the tea part, that we talked about the other day. But they don't take it on to its logical end, uh, as used to be the case with a lot of people. But we'll look at that as we come to it today. This uh, Reformed faith that was arising in the Protestant Reformation in England became influential in a number of countries. And as you can see, these countries were pretty much scattered across the northern part of Europe. Switzerland, France, Germany, Hungary, Scotland, Ireland, and Holland. Some of those countries, of course, extend a little bit farther south, but most of them are situated in the northern part. But in Scotland, there was an especially radical reformation. Uh, and it's interesting to compare what happened in Scotland to what happened in England. Which, which denominational group do you usually associate with Scotland? Presbyterianism, that's right. Well, Presbyterianism from its inception was a hotbed of Calvinism. Now, if you talk to some present-day Presbyterians, you're going to find out that they don't know much at all about Calvinism, especially the ones that meet up here on the square in Athens, because they're affiliated with the most liberal branch of Presbyterianism. PQC, it's called Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. And then down below them, you have the Presbyterian Church in America, which is much more conservative. A lot of the PQSA people don't even believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Some of them might not believe in the deity of Christ or the virgin birth of Jesus. And you know, of course, that the Presbyterians in recent years have been fighting some of the same battles that uh, the Episcopalians and which uh, the United Church of Christ quit fighting years ago. And it looks like the Episcopalians are just about ready to quit fighting it and get, give over to evil. But uh, the Presbyterians have been fighting for years now over whether to ordain uh, homosexuals. And it's because of the influence of modernism in that denominational group. There are just a lot of them that don't believe that the Bible is the very word of God. And so they don't put as much confidence in it. They don't trust its teachings. They try to explain it away. But there are other groups down on down the line, like the Presbyterian Church in America and uh, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, there are a number of Presbyterian denominations or different branches that are much more conservative. The Orthodox Presbyterians, for instance, they believe strictly in Calvinism, and they don't believe in the mechanical instrument of music. And if you want to read a book that's a masterpiece in opposing the mechanical instrument of music in the worship of the church, there's a book by John Gerardo. Uh, I'd have to spell that out on paper, <laughs> since it's an unusual name. But John Gerardo is the author's name. In the late 1800s, he wrote a book 
because the Presbyterians were beginning to discuss this matter of using the mechanical engine. Well, he opposed it. And he opposed it on good scriptural grounds. Uh, it reminds me of another book that just recently came out. I can't even remember the name of it, but New Light on Old Worship. Or do I have that reverse? Is it Old Light on New... New New light on old worship. It's a denominational fellow, but he teaches the truth when it comes to the worship of the church. Now, he does say this. He, uh, he says, well, I can have fellowship with a group that uses just one instrument, but not two or three. <laughs> That's right. But he doesn't want it used at all where he is. So, you know, I would differ with him over that. But he teaches the silence of the scriptures. In his writings. <laughs> well, uh, this uh, this matter began to spread, though, there in Scotland, that hotbed of Presbyterianism. But now, in opposition to that, there's England. England took the middle role. The via media, as they called it, using the Latin term, the middle way. Uh, England was affected by Calvinism, especially the low branch of the Anglicans, or the Church of England. The high branch, as we said the other day, was affected more by Arminianism. But uh, in England, where the church even had its beginning in the lap of political compromise, uh, there, there never was uh, the Calvinistic influence that there was in Scotland. There was some. There was quite a bit, in fact. And that was seen in the 39 articles that the uh, British came up with. And that, until this day, is supposed to be the foundation of Anglicanism. But uh, England took a more middle way, and what that means is that they retain more of Catholicism than the other groups did, the other countries did. They retained uh, more of the trappings of Catholicism, uh, the ornate buildings, the uh, priestly class, the priestly vestments, uh, and some of them even give some kind of veneration to the saints. Uh, some of the Anglicans do, the high church ones do. They, uh, but they were affected somewhat. Now, what happened in Scotland came to affect this country and, and Canada. Canada was affected also by a lot of Scotch-Irish immigrants. A lot of the people of Scotland came first to Ireland on their way. And because of the hardships of travel, a number of them had to stay there for a while. Alexander Campbell was one of those. Alexander Campbell started over here from Scotland, but he uh, he had to stop because of a shipwreck, you remember? And uh, he spent some time in Ireland. But those Scotch-Irish immigrants became the bedrock cause of Calvinism here in this country and to some extent up in Canada. Now, there weren't as many Scotch-Irish immigrants in Canada as there were from other countries maybe, but there were some up there. And uh, those were the people who promoted Calvinism. 
They moved into the Southland. They moved into Alabama, Georgia, various places. Uh, of course, Calvin's home of Geneva in Switzerland was the uh, strongest, uh, the greatest stronghold of Calvinism. But as these people came to this country, and as the message of the gospel began to spread out into the various colonies, and then across the mountains, uh, the mountains going up the eastern part of this country, as that message crossed the mountains and came into uh, the frontier, a lot of emphasis was placed upon revivalism by the early 1800s. Now, this had started really back in the 1700s. But holding revivals. Now, just stop and think for a minute. Why do you need a revival if God has elected certain men and angels unto salvation? And the number is so fixed that you can't increase it or decrease it. Why do you need revivals? You don't. Well, this is evidence of a weakening of the hold that Calvinism had on people's thinking. Men like uh, Jonathan Edwards, you've read about him, I'm sure, in your literature in years past. He, he had that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Uh, men like George Whitfield, they were especially important when it came to promoting revivalism in this country. Well, the more that happened, the more people could understand that election evidently was not altogether a matter of divine decree. It also depended to some extent on the spreading of the message of the gospel of Christ. And so Calvinism began to be modified through the influence of revivalism. Also, the opposition that Calvinism experienced over in Europe from James Arminius that we introduced the other day. Uh, we talked a little bit about Arminianism. Uh, let me show you some points of Arminianism. I guess that would be page five, maybe. Toward the bottom of page five. Arminianism holds to these tenets. And I want you to think about these and compare them to Calvinism. Tell me where there's a difference and where there's, where there's, there's a similarity. Humans are naturally unable to make any effort toward salvation. How does that compare to Calvinism? Same. That's right. Same thing. Salvation is possible by grace alone. Same thing, isn't it? Works of human effort cannot cause or contribute to salvation. Same thing virtually. That's right. And remember, people under that influence of Arminianism, like uh, John and Charles Wesley, and thus the Methodists, uh, the Salvation Army, Church of the Nazarene, the Wesleyan Church, all of those people believe Virtually the same as Calvinism on these early points that we just covered. But notice the next point. 
God's election is conditional on faith in Jesus. That's right. That's a deviation from Calvinism, from strict Calvinism. Because Calvin said, and his followers said, God's election is unconditional. Remember, that's the you. P-U. Unconditional election. So if you, if you branched out and said, oh, well, God elects, but that election is manifested when people choose to believe the gospel. That's not Calvinism, really. And if you read some of the websites today where strict Calvinism is upheld or advanced, they will ridicule people that don't believe all the points of Calvinism. Therefore, they're not even Calvinists. And, of course, they're not in the strict sense of the word. Uh, a lot of it has been written in recent years about two-point Calvinists. And really, that's the Arminian uh, influence. But the uh, idea of a two-point Calvinist is ridiculed. It's scoffed at on some of the Calvinistic websites. Uh, they say, why? They don't believe it. And, of course, really and truly, they don't. Well, what about Jesus' atonement being for all people? Ah, that's right. That's right. But what does Calvinism say under the eye? No, not, not the I. Hell, excuse me. Limited atonement. That's right. He died only for the elect. Okay? Uh, and then God allows his grace to be resisted by those unwilling to believe. No, it's irresistible, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Now, if you were going to tell somebody what the Bible says about God's grace, by receiving it or resisting it, what would you say? How would you show that God's grace can be resisted? Okay, that's one way. There, there are some definite passages which clearly show a person can fall away from God's grace. Okay? Can you think of somebody who resisted the grace of God? Or resisted uh, even one of the divine beings by whom grace is dispensed? Jesus killed the rulers of the synagogue. Huh. All right. What did they do, Ralph? They, uh, they believed that they were not professed. Okay. God. Okay. What did Peter, what did the, not Peter, Stephen, charge the people in Acts 7 with doing? You do always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. So it wasn't a new thing. It's something they were just continuing. They learned it from their fathers, I suppose. Resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, how have their fathers resisted the Holy Spirit? By resisting the messages of the prophets. The prophets, moved by the Spirit. When they were resisted, that was tantamount to resisting the Spirit. Okay? So God can be resisted. Oh, but God is sovereign. He's so totally in control, you can't resist it. Well, yes you can, because God has arranged it that way. That's right. As we said the very first day, God is not truly honored 
by people who have the power to choose but are not allowed to choose. As we said the other day, the dog barks because he has to. The cricket chirps because it has to. The daffodil blooms because it has to. That's just the way God has made it. And all of them contribute to God's glory. All of them glorify God by showing his handiwork. But the human being is not made to be a robot or an automaton. God's not pulling the strings in such a fashion that the human being has to do what God wants him to do. God is truly honored, truly served, truly worshipped when we do it because we choose to do it. Because we love him and we choose to serve him. That's true honor or true worship. Salvation can be lost as continued salvation is conditional upon faith. And really we've already answered that too. Because we can depart from God's grace. Well, I want to give, uh, call your attention to some things right at the top of page 5. I want to show us that uh, various groups have been influenced to different degrees by Calvinism. And I've already introduced that, really, by talking about some of the groups that would be more Arminian than they are Calvinistic. But there are some that are very Calvinistic. The ones that we call the Primitive Baptists today, the Hardshell Baptists. Do you fellows have those up in Canada? Do you have any that are called Particular Baptists? You don't. For the first Okay, they're 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 uh, much more moderate when it comes to Calvinism. Even the first Baptists down here are uh, Southern Baptists. Most of the first Baptist churches in the South, of course, are affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention, and they they believe certain parts of Calvinism, but other parts they don't. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But the primitives or the ones that were called the particular Baptists in England before they came over here, and still are maybe to some extent. The Christian Reformed Church, some very orthodox or conservative Presbyterian groups, as I said uh, earlier today. All of these hold the five points of Calvinism. But most Protestants who are not modernists, that is, most Protestants who say, I believe that the Bible is truly the Word of God and that we must depend upon it for our faith and our religious practice. Most of those, the ones that are called evangelicals, adhere to a milder form of Calvinism, a form that's been weakened by these various influences. Now, one of those influences that I didn't mention just now, but I did bring it in a few minutes ago, was modernism. You know, if you don't believe that the Bible is the very Word of God, then you're not going to give much attention or as much attention to what the Bible says. You're not going to be concerned about whether God elected people to salvation. And with most of the modernists, the gospel has become a vehicle for changing society, the social gospel. 
And we sometimes think of the social gospel simply in terms of uh, having the kitchen in the meeting house or fellowship hall. Well, that might be one manifestation of it, but that really is not the thing that's really involved in the social gospel. The social gospel looks at the gospel as a vehicle for social change. And so, beginning in the late 1800s, all through the 1900s, the social gospel was gaining headway. And by the time of the civil rights movement of the 60s and the 70s, the gospel became not just a vehicle for saving people from their sins, but a vehicle for changing society's view of the black people. That was, a, that was a really manifest area in which the gospel became a vehicle for social change. Who were the leaders in that movement? Preachers. Nearly all of them were preachers. And nearly all of them preached the message based on modernism. Now, some of the black preachers didn't realize that. I'm going to have to give them some credit for that. Some did. Martin Luther King knew what he was doing. Martin Luther King was a modernist from beginning to end. But some of the older black preachers were not. But they went along. They, they thought, well, the gospel is a means of social change. Well, you stop and think about that. Did the Lord ever use the gospel, or did the apostles ever use the gospel for bringing about social change? No. No. Think of slavery. That would have been the ideal opportunity to throw, overthrow slavery. Instead, slaves were told to go back to their masters. Like Onesimus. Even uh, Hagar was told that back in Genesis 16. Go back to her mistress, Sarah, and submit to her. Uh, and also in like, 1 Timothy 6, the early verses there, uh, they're told to be in subjection to their masters. The gospel was not a vehicle for social evolution or social change. But, of course, it's been used in that way. And today, it's being used as a vehicle for uh, bringing about different views on climate. I noticed in recent days some articles in the paper where uh, even some of the Baptist preachers are getting involved in that kind of thrust. Uh, uh, changing views on the climate. Well, as people turn more and more away from the Scriptures... And from the spiritual focus in the scriptures, you can understand, of course, that various doctrines, not just Calvinism, but various doctrines which people have so-called based on the scripture, aren't going to receive nearly as much attention. I want to notice now the five points here toward the beginning or top of page five, the five points of Calvinism. And observe with you that there have been some changes take place regarding those different points. What used to be called total inherited depravity or inborn sin, if you were Catholic, now is hardly ever described in that way. If you read the writings of the evangelicals today, they'll hardly ever talk about total depravity or inherited depravity. They'll use some other term like man's corrupt nature. 
or man's sinful nature. And that's just about across the board. Now, if you're a strict Calvinist, you still will talk about total inherited depravity, but most of them are not anymore. Uh, yes. In nearly every, in nearly every passage where Paul used the word for flesh, the New International Version translates it as sinful nature. That's, that's a very dangerous concept, really. Because it writes into the Bible or injects into the scriptures something that really is not there. Uh, now, can man's nature become corrupt? Yes. But it's not an inherited corruption. It becomes corrupt when we allow sin to control us. And that's the, that's the use really of the word flesh in the Bible sometimes. When Paul talks about the flesh as opposed to the spirit, he's talking about the flesh which you have allowed to come under the control of sin. That happens, but it doesn't happen by inheritance. All right? Unconditional election. You'll virtually never read that in the writings of the evangelicals or hear them talk about it in their preaching. But they'll talk about salvation by faith alone. And some of them will make the point, not all of them, some of them will make the point that uh, this faith is something that God generates, that God makes possible in you. Others will say, uh, will take a more moderate approach to that. On limited atonement, this has been dropped for the most part among the evangelicals. It's still retained among the strict Calvinists, but if you're not a strict Calvinist, you don't even... Teach. You don't even believe that Jesus died just for the elect. And so they dropped it. It just dropped out of the system as far as a lot of people are concerned. Of course, they're not slaves of the system anyway. Irresistible grace? Uh, it's not called that anymore. But you'll read quite often about regeneration by the Spirit. Uh, by the direct work of the Spirit. Now, if somebody came to you and asked you a question like this, what would your answer be? Do you believe in regeneration by the Spirit of God or by the Holy Spirit? What would your answer be? That's right. It's a loaded question, isn't it? You have to know where they're coming from like we talked about Monday, don't you? Now, knowing some people... I would say, well, I believe in a kind of regeneration by the Spirit, and I would explain what I believe the Bible teaches. And I believe the Spirit is involved in our regeneration. Jesus said, except a man be born again of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom. Jesus said that. So here is entrance into the kingdom of God, dependent upon the new birth. The new birth involving water and the Spirit. So yes, the Spirit of God is involved. Yes, we're regenerated by the Spirit of God. But does the Spirit work by means or apart from means? Does He use means to regenerate us? Or does He just do it directly, miraculously? That's right. He uses means, doesn't He? 
And that's the key to it. That's the point that a lot of people haven't really considered. They just think, well, the Spirit does it. Well, He does. I'm willing to give Him credit for that. And we need to. But we need to make the point also that in every case of conversion in the book of Acts, just, just nail this down, in every case of conversion, the Spirit did His work through the message that was preached. That's why the Lord gave the commission, preach the gospel. And, of course, the cases of conversion are but illustrations of the Great Commission being carried out. So the gospel is preached in every case. Now, here's something hard to, hard to know why. But, uh, well, we know why, but it's hard to understand why people would resort to this extreme. You take faith and repentance and uh, confession of Christ and baptism taught through the different cases of conversion in the book of Acts, they all began with the preaching of the message. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, about verse 21, it pleased God through the foolishness of the preaching, or the message preached, to save them that believe. That's God's way of saving people. So every one of them started with the gospel preaching. And every one of them ended with baptism into Christ. There's not an exception to that. Now, you don't find repentance specifically mentioned in all those cases. I'm not saying it's not there. It is there. But it's not specified all the time. You don't find confession always specified. I believe it's there, but it's not specifically mentioned. Well, why is it that our denominational friends accept those parts of conversion which are not everywhere mentioned or everywhere included, but the two that are everywhere mentioned, the first one, preaching the gospel, and the last one, baptism into Christ, they reject. Now that's a fact. They reject the two that are everywhere mentioned. They say, you can be saved without ever hearing the gospel. I've heard people say that because they believe that God reaches down and quickens you miraculously transforms you. That's what they believe. And that's why they leave out the preaching of the gospel. And of course they believe that he justifies you apart from works, including baptism. He does it unconditionally. He did it before the world began. And even the evangelicals accept a version, a modified version of that, because they don't believe that baptism really has anything to do with your justification or salvation. Well, even the Baptists, though, are divided on this matter. And that's our next section here. All of these people, influenced by Calvinism to any degree, believe in God's sovereignty to some extent. Now look at that. Some of them believe that the sovereignty of God is a controlling factor in both one's election under salvation and his defection. That is, uh, you can be the elect only if God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. And if God has chosen you, that makes it impossible for you ever to depart. You can't, you can't uh, fall from grace. 
you'll persevere. Well, the more Calvinistic groups believe that. The regular Baptists up in the mountains of, uh, of the uh, Virginia, North Carolina, West Virginia, they believe that. The primitive Baptists here in Alabama and Tennessee, they believe that because they're thoroughgoing Calvinists. But then there are some among the Baptists who say that God's sovereignty is a controlling factor only when it comes to defecting from Christ or defecting from the gospel. They believe that preaching the gospel helps people to believe, and they do that. You know, they're called missionary Baptists. That's why. They believe that the Lord has given us the commission to go out and preach the gospel. And so the gospel is God's means of of determining who believes. But when it comes to the perseverance of the saints, the P part of the doctrine, they believe that God is in control absolutely there. And if you obey the gospel, that proves that you're one of the elect and he's not going to let his elect depart. So the missionary Baptists, the Southern Baptists, uh, believe just two points. They believe the point on total depravity or uh, carnal nature, corrupt nature, and then the one on the P, the perseverance of the saints. Uh, the sovereignty of God, furthermore, is viewed as controlling neither one of those by some of the Baptists, like the free wills. The free will Baptists believe that you have freedom of will at the beginning and at the end of the process. You can choose to believe and to become a Christian, and you also can choose to depart. The free wills are free, uh, maintain free will, the belief in free will, on both ends of the spectrum there. So even among the Baptists, you see, there is division regarding these matters. I'm about to pull this thing off. That cord got in the way. Well, among the Presbyterians, you find the same thing. Uh, there was a time when Presbyterianism, of course, was pretty much united in its adherence to Calvinism. But, as the same influences that began to affect the Baptists and others came into this country, uh, Presbyterianism also began to be affected. When Thomas Campbell came over here about the year uh, 1800 from Scotland, he was described as being, uh, I always have to look because it's an old white anti-burger seceder Presbyterian. <laughs> That's a mouthful. And every one of those has some significance. Uh, anti-burger just means uh, those, those Presbyterians did not believe that, uh, that the government had any control over the church. The Church of Scotland... Uh, started allowing the government to have some powers over it. Well, the anti-burger branch believed that they shouldn't, so they split from the others. And also, uh, they were called seceders because they seceded over the matter of whether, uh, whether uh, a higher organization like the Synod should have the power to assign preachers. 
So that was the issue there. But on this matter of old light, that just meant that uh, the only light you could accept was just the doctrine of the Scripture regarding election. That is, from their viewpoint, I'm not saying this is what it teaches, of course, but from their viewpoint, uh, the Scriptures taught that God has foreordained certain men and angels before the world began. Well, they said, that's the only light available to us. Well, a new stream of thought entered Presbyterianism through some of these same channels that we've been talking about today. The new lights started teaching the idea that we need to get out here and evangelize. The teachings of the gospel. After all, that, that's another way of God's enlightening people. And that's right. It is. And also, they placed, started placing a certain value on what they call Christian experience. You know, your experience of grace, your experience of salvation, your conversion experience. If you could bring to the church uh, a believable account, a trustworthy account of your conversion, then that in itself was, was counted for something, too. And so... Uh, people were voted in, accepted as members on the basis of their Christian experience. So well, those were the new lights among the Presbyterians, as opposed to the old lights. Any questions up till this point? Well, at the top of page 6, the last page of this handout, I make the point that advocates of both Arminianism and Calvinism find a home in many Protestant denominations. And sometimes within the same denomination you'll have them. The Anglican Church, the Church of England, is a good example of that. I guess you say, would say that they have uh, tolerated more diversity than any other group I know of. They've tolerated a lot more than Catholicism. Catholicism, of course, is under the rigid control of the Pope and his bishops. But in Anglicanism, they have, they've been very tolerant. And that's really what has been their downfall when it comes to this matter of, of uh, ordaining women and ordaining homosexuals. There's been an outcry among the Anglicans, and in this country the Episcopalians, now for 30 years against ordaining women. There are some of them that just don't believe that's right. They don't believe that's biblical. And I think they're right on that. And now, of course, in more recent years, especially with their ordaining this uh, homosexual bishop up in New Hampshire, Gene Robinson, there's been a, there's been a tremendous uh, undercurrent uh, of opposition. And there are churches or what they call parishes and dioceses that you read about in the paper just every few days that are leaving them because of that. Uh, but they tolerated a lot of diversity up till now. But it's, uh, it's beginning to hurt them, of course. I, I indicate here those groups that lean more toward the Arminian side as well as those that lean more toward the Calvinistic side. And by the way, this is a quotation. As I said, this is a source 
from uh, uh, an encyclopedia on the internet, which uh, it's come to be rather a popular encyclopedia. And I guess it's possible for people to put information on there. I understand it is anyway. That sometimes turns out to be incorrect. Wikipedia, but uh, this is correct here as far as talking about these different groups. But this is a quotation. It says Churches of Christ when it comes to Arminianism. Well, I guess he's talking about uh, uh, groups that he knows about. And uh, but I'm one of those who who can't be classified in either camp, of course, when it comes to Arminianism or Calvinism. Uh, I prefer just uh, saying I believe what the Bible teaches and and showing what the Bible teaches, of course. But I'm giving you here just the quotation from the Internet. That's why it's here. Now, I will say this right at the end of that. Up till now, most Southern Baptists, including Billy Graham, have really accepted Arminianism more than they have strict Calvinism. Now, you know, as we've already seen, that Arminianism includes some of the tenets of Calvinism, but not all of them. Well, that's the way it's been with Billy Graham all along. But Calvinism is growing, believe it or not, in its acceptance among the Southern Baptists. I mentioned here two leaders among the Southern Baptists, Albert Moeller and Mark Dever, who've been trying to lead the convention to a Reformed view, a strict Calvinistic view of the faith. I have here an article that appeared in uh, last Friday, December the 7th, Athens News Courier. Calvinism more popular among Southern Baptists. Almost 30% of recent graduates of Southern Baptist seminaries who became church pastors say they are Calvinists according to a survey by the denomination. Among all Southern Baptist pastors, only about 10% follow Calvinism, according to studies by the Southern Baptist Church's Lifeway Research and North American Mission Board Center for Missional Research. It would be difficult to say that Calvinism is not a growing influence in Southern Baptist convention life, said Ed Stetzer, director of Lifeway Research. So, even though just 10% of them, of the pastors, believe it now, uh, almost 30% of those people who are graduating from their seminaries believe it. So that's where they're working on it, you see. That's where Albert Moeller, the president of the convention, and this other man, that's where they're really working on it, where they're training their preachers. And uh, so they're going to produce over the next few years more and more who do believe it. Jeff? Uh, so are we, are we saying by that that they will become more accepting of the five tenths of Calvinism and not just the select few that they have? Well, at least more of them. I don't know how many, of course, they ultimately. But, but really, when you, uh, when you start down that system, it's so logically arranged that really you have, just almost have to buy into the system. The reason I'm asking is that's the first one here in my life in Southern Baptist Church. And I've never heard it taught that man is in sin because of inheritance in life. Did you hear him teach corrupt nature? No. Or sinful nature? No. You didn't hear that? No, sir. I didn't. Uh, I heard, I heard, I heard about 
say much about it. But they believe that. I don't mind that at all. I sinful nature uh, uh, you can't do anything on your own God has to initiate it and uh, and really that's where the Armenians would come in they would believe that uh, that the human being once God initiates it but not uh, not fully uh, making that person believe but initiating an influence to cause the person to believe that's what the Armenians would believe. And I would say that the Southern Baptists probably would be of that strife or that variety. They would believe that, yes, to some degree, that corrupt or sinful influence does hinder you from believing. But because they're missionary, they believe that the gospel, when preached, is the means of overcoming that. I just I want to get you to draw your off track this morning, but all of the Right, and there, uh, there again, there are different ways that Calvinists approach little children. Some of them teach that uh, that they're damned and that they need to be uh, baptized as infants. That's the Presbyterian and Methodist approach. But the Baptists who are strict Calvinists, like the primitives, or the old regular Baptists up in the mountains, they don't believe in infant baptism. They believe uh, that the child is lost. I can't say for sure what they say God will do about that child. So they won't address the need of the child. I'm not saying they don't address it. I'm just saying I don't know. Just exactly how they address it. That's right. That's right. No, they came out of the Anabaptist movement uh, in Europe. Baptist baptizing adults. Now, in the time that remains this morning, I want us to examine some of the weaknesses or the flaws of Calvinism here on page 6. And these are certainly not the only weaknesses or flaws. We're going to look at some others in the outline that we'll start examining tomorrow. This one just entitled Calvinism. And we'll go through that tomorrow. We'll, we'll do uh, the introduction and the first two Roman numerals tomorrow. The T and the U, total depravity and unconditional election. And then Friday, Lord willing, we'll take Roman numerals 3, 4, and 5 and conclude our study. But today, 
just uh, in the way of overviewing, or generally viewing this matter, let's think about some of the flaws of Calvinism. I'm going to make a statement, and then I'm going to ask you to respond to it. And the response that I want is um, specific information about this matter. Uh, I think you'll agree with it, and so that's why I'm assuming that you will uh, be able to, uh, so to speak, back me up on it or verify it. But I'm just sort of challenging you to do this right now. In the first place, God's invitation or command, and sometimes it's put in the form of a command, or his instruction is given to saints and sinners alike. Now, what does that have to do with showing a weakness or a flaw of Calvinism? And we're talking now about the strict Calvinistic system, of course. Well, That's a universal invitation or universal instruction or charge. All right, all right. He commands all men. You know what the strict Calvinists would say about that, Jonathan? He would say, well, that's true, but only the elect are able to repent. They're the only ones that can obey it. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's what they say about it. Only the elect will respond in faith or repentance. And Jonathan's talking about it. It is. <laughs> but that's what they say. Uh, now, let's look at it again. Still on number one. God's instruction or invitation, command is the saints and sinners alike. Is that true? Well, Jonathan said, well, he commands all men everywhere to repent. Where did you find that, Jonathan? You didn't just dream that up, did you? Right. Now, to whom was Paul speaking when he said, what? Non-Christians. That's right. Where were they? Who were these non-Christians? Right. Greeks in Athens, weren't they? Not Athens, Alabama. <laughs> there are plenty of non-Christians here. What did you say? Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Now, where else would you turn in your Bible to verify this point? I'm not putting verification there. I'm depending on you for that. Mark 16. Mark 16. How is that verified? That's right. That's right. The the charge was take the gospel to everybody. Why? If some can't respond properly to it. You see, I think this is a valid point. The fact that God addresses these matters to saints and sinners alike proves that God has not made that eternal decree which some say he has made. God is not willing that any should Right. 
Right. Well, if he's not willing that any should perish, why has he consigned some torment without any possibility of their avoiding that consignment? And several places in the Bible were told he's no respected person. All right. Uh, that's the point I'm going to get to later this week. If you want to preach a sermon sometime on Calvinism and not get bogged down in a lot of the finer points, but just go through it point by point, T-U-L-I-P, and show that it's false, I would recommend this approach. I've done this before. Just start out with Acts 10, 34, or Romans 2, what is it, 11, I guess. There is no respect of persons with God. Or, as Peter announced at Cornelius' house, God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation, he that fears him and works righteousness is acceptable to it. Take that principle of divine impartiality and just go down through the five points of Calvinism. I say, we're going to do this later this week. But that makes for a good lesson. You can show that every one of the five points violates this principle that, that God is impartial. And I'll not do that right now, because like I said, we will take care of it later in the week. Uh, in that same sermon that Jonathan referred us to there in Acts 17, did God say something about people seeking the Lord? Yeah. That they all should seek after the Lord? That's right. Now passages like Isaiah, what is it, 55, I guess, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. That's addressed to the Lord's people. But this one over in Acts 17, seeking the Lord there, that teaches the principle that the outsider, the alien, can seek him. And so that's why I say this, this idea, I think, is a valid point in showing the flaws of Calvinism. So that's right. All you that labor and are heavy laden. Right. And you can just take every one of those terms that I've put there. Call upon the Lord. Believe. Repent. Be baptized. Obey. Evangelize. Accountability. Every one of those terms, while it might not be found in that very form, that idea is found in the Scriptures. And God, God shows us by talking about such matters that all people are accountable to him. All people are capable of responding to him in faith and obedience and are expected to. All right? Point number two. It is impossible to discern any difference between the sinner's inability to respond and the saint's ability in contexts where such commands are Instructions or commands are found. I, I misstated that. That should be instructions or commands are found. Uh, let me clarify what I mean there. When God told, through Paul of course, but when God told the Philippian jailer to do something in Acts 16, what did he tell him to do? Believe on the Lord. Right. Now, as we've said earlier this morning, if the sinner is incapable of believing 
until the Lord endows him with that ability, quickens him, wakes him up, makes him alive, zaps him, whatever you want to call it. Why did Paul tell the sinner? And furthermore, why is the command to believe directed in every case to the individual? The individual is never told, believe when the Lord wakes you up, or when the Lord zaps you, or when the Lord quickens you. He's just told to believe. And the Word is taught him so that he can. In fact, there in Acts 16, uh, they preached unto him the Word of the Lord, and then, of course, he believed and was baptized. And when it's all over, the passage even ends in this way. And this is a summary of what's taken place. It says, having believed on the Lord, or having believed in Christ. I forget the exact word. All right, so here was an individual told what to do, and then he was taught to do it, or taught the message, taught the gospel, so that he could do it. He could believe it. And then, of course, he did. And when he believed it, he obeyed it. And then the record says, having believed. That's a, that's a summary of what he's doing. All right? Now, there's an unbeliever. According to Calvinism, of course, uh, certain people are incapable of believing. But you can't discern any difference between the sinner's inability to respond and the saint's ability in those contexts where those commands are found. When you read about saints responding in positive fashion to the gospel, for example, Paul's writing to them, or uh, John's writing to the seven churches, did John have to sometimes deal with some people that were rather incorrigible? He surely did in those seven letters. Now, why did why why is there? Not a difference then between saints. You know, you would think that saints would just be fully compliant. You'd never have to write them a letter and correct them about anything. That's right. They're the elect. And yet, the same kind of commands that are given to sinners are given to saints. And furthermore, in the context where they're given, the reaction quite often is similar or the same. Now why is that so? If the saint is one who God has elected, you see. I think that demonstrates a flaw of Calvinism. And then finally, never does the Bible depict any such sinners failing to understand or obey because of inherent ability do so. I meant to put a slash line between understand and obey sometimes. Anyway, uh, think about that point. If sinners do not understand the gospel or do not obey it because they are inherently unable to do it, why does the Bible not present that picture to us? Do you ever find Peter, or Paul in the book of Acts, for instance, saying to the people, now those of you that can understand it because of inherent ability, but the rest of you don't need to worry about this. 
or even in the teaching of Jesus, when Jesus occasionally would mention the fact that some did not understand or even could not, in practical terms, understand, did he say it because of your inherent inability? No. In Matthew 13, for instance, in that section where they'd ask him about why do you teach in parables, he didn't put his finger on some kind of inherited inability. He said their eyes, they have closed. Think about that. Their eyes, they have closed. That's where, that's where the accountability is. That's where the responsibility belongs. You know, in John 12, 42 and 43, uh, one made the Pharisees, God the Pharisees, and many believed on him. But because of their fear of being cast out of synagogue, they did not confess him because they loved the glory that is in them more than the glory that is in God. So there they believed on him. Uh, obviously they had the ability to believe on him in the context mm-hmm. of talking about the signs that he did, and, and yet they did not confess him. So if they say the cross, they did not be elected. Of course, you know what the Calvinists would say. They'd say about the same thing that they do about Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8. He wasn't really converted. He wasn't really the elect. Yeah. The thing that impressed me about their, their uh, assertions is that it's never stated. It's just sort of understood that that's the way it is. <laughs> well, you have, to, you have to assume something, don't you? You have to read it into the text. That's right. And there's a big difference between exegesis, that is taking out of the text what's already there, and reading it into the eisegesis, putting it there. That he was not a true disciple. They just say that he was not a true disciple. And, of course, that's true at the point when he defected. That's true. But that's not true earlier. This might be be just more of the same as I've been saying. When Paul, when Peter was preaching the day of Pentecost, with many other words, he testified in Christ and saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Uh, He seems to be putting the odds on them. They have the ability. But he says, you do it. Mm-hmm. And he used words. He taught. Right. And uh, I'll tell you something else to say about Judas, Jonathan. And we'll have to stop at this point. Um, they'll say, well, it's prophesied in the Old Testament that Judas was going to do that, so that's a matter of God's eternal decree. You know, like we said the other day about the one that wiggled his little finger and said, God eternally decreed that I would do that before the world began. Well, he eternally decreed what Judas would do. And yet, uh, the reading there in uh, Acts 1 concerning him leaves you with the impression that Judas did that of his own free will. He he fell, of course, from his uh, place that he had among the Lord's people. And... uh, well, our time is about up, and I don't want to infringe on 
Bob time, I guess it would be, the next speaker. So we'll bring this to a close unless somebody has a pressing question or point you'd like to make today. If you have a question that comes up between now and tomorrow, just hold it and we'll get to it then. It's kind of thinking, uh, In fact, I know there was because of what 1 Corinthians 12 teaches about that being one of the miraculous gifts, the gift of faith. I think there was, and I think there was a reason for that.